If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians as we begin walking through this letter of the Apostle Paul together. The book of Ephesians is, by some accounts, um, perhaps the, the greatest theological writing uh, in the New Testament, perhaps the greatest uh, penned by the Apostle Paul with this, the heights of God's glory and grace and the vastness of his love bestowed on followers of Christ through faith, and then the practical sort of outworking of that faith and that grace as, uh, as the church, as Christians, uh, live out the love and faith uh, in Christ uh, in the world. And so the book is really divided into these two halves. The first three chapters are theological riches, all of the, 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 the blessings and the treasures that belong to us because of the grace of God in Christ. And then chapters four through six are a practical outworking of those treasures. Because this is yours, here's how you ought to live. One uh, commentator, Peter O'Brien, says that the, the great themes of the book of Ephesians are cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. And I like the word cosmic in that phrase because it means it, it points us to a reality that is much bigger than our own lives, bigger than our own church, bigger than our own community, even bigger than all of the redeemed people of God. In fact, the, the book of Ephesians will tell us later in chapter 1 that in Christ God was reconciling all things to himself. There is a cosmic, a glo beyond global, universal scope of the gospel. And in that cosmic reconciliation, as through the work of Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself, he has united the church. That is, he has united Christians to one another as one new people, as one new man, as God's people in the world and in his eternal kingdom. So cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ is a pretty good way to summarize the themes of the book of Ephesians. We're only today going to attempt to cover the first two verses. I know that might be a little ambitious, but we're going to try to get two verses in here. Um, simply Paul's introduction, just his salutation, right? The, the greeting at the beginning of this letter. Uh, there's one phrase I want to highlight before we really start walking through this, and that's the phrase, in Ephesus. So when he says in verse 2, to the saints who are in Ephesus, I need for you to know that probably those words are not original to Paul's letter. Probably Paul did not write in Ephesus uh, to address the, the Christians to which he was writing. The, the manuscript evidence, that is all the copies of, of this document that have been written and hand copied and handed down through the centuries. The, the, the manuscript evidence suggests that, that the words in Ephesus were added in later copies, perhaps signifying that Ephesus was in fact the first uh, and maybe the primary city to which this letter was carried. But it seems that the, the book of Ephesians was written as a what was known as a circular letter. It was This letter was intended to be carried around the region to the different churches that gathered in that 
area. And so Paul, by uh, the hand of a, of a fellow uh, laborer in the gospel named Tychicus, sends this letter to probably uh, the church or churches in Ephesus, this major uh, metropolitan city in, uh, in Greece, but also uh, to the churches in uh, southwest Asia Minor and that region. So, um, so perhaps in Ephesus is not actually in the original letter that Paul wrote. Nevertheless, we, we expect that the letter did go to the church and churches in Ephesus uh, and then was distributed around uh, the, the area so that congregations throughout the region might hear this writing uh, and be blessed and instructed by it. Now, if you've given its nature as a circular letter, that is one that was written to many congregations and not one particular church in only one particular place, it is also the most general of Paul's letters. That is, he's not necessarily responding to a particular problem or doctrinal confusion or a new, somebody who's, you know, kind of coming up and trying to claim authority and leadership who isn't preaching the true gospel, as some of his other, most of his other letters in the New Testament actually seem to address some particular problem that a church was facing. In the case of the book of Ephesians, it is much more general than that. It's much less sort of specified to a unique situation. And because of that, because of the generality of the letter, it actually feels even more universally relevant and applicable because the propositions and exhortations of Ephesians can almost all be directly applied to Christians everywhere, no matter when, because he's writing generally to Christian churches to encourage them in the faith, to remind them of what belongs to them because of their union with Jesus Christ and how they are now called to live in the world. And so the book of Ephesians lands with almost immediate relevance and impact into our lives in our own day because we don't have to do quite as much parsing of, now what was the particular controversy that this is addressing and things like that. He is writing to Christians to exhort and encourage us in the faith. The intro to the letter follows the basic pattern for letters from this period, which was basically threefold, to uh, identify the sender, identify the recipients, and to provide some kind of greeting. I am Paul, writing to Christians in Ephesus or beyond, Hello, right? So, uh, accomplishing those three basic purposes, uh, and Paul's letters all follow that basic pattern, although he usually, perhaps always, infuses that greeting with theological depth and riches that we would uh, be remiss to, uh, to skim past, to get into the meat, right? So, let me read for you verses 1 and 2, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I believe that we see in even these two verses what he's going to begin expounding and elaborating upon in glorious 
depth. We see even in these two verses, God generously pours out grace upon his people. God generously pours out grace on his people. And I think we see that grace in three ways in these verses. The grace of God poured out on his people in three ways. Number one, the grace of God is seen in that God appointed Paul as an apostle. See that at the very first phrase. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The very fact that Paul can identify himself that way is evidence of God's grace in at least two different ways. First of all, Paul's position as an apostle and even his conversion to faith in Christ was by the sheer grace of God, the sheer kindness of God to interrupt him on his mission to persecute the church, to imprison Christians. You can read about the story of of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. The famous account as he's on the road to Damascus seeking to round up Christians and uh, imprison them. But God interrupts him. A a blinding light shines upon him and he hears a voice from heaven that apparently only he hears. Uh, The others in the company with him as they were traveling seemed to see the light and be aware that Paul was having some kind of a, a vision or something, but only Paul heard the voice. And the voice was the voice of the Lord Jesus who said, Saul, which was his Jewish name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? so identified with the people of God, the church of Christ, is the Lord Jesus himself, that as Saul is seeking to to do harm to the church, Jesus receives that as harm to himself. Why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus says to Paul. And he strikes him blind, and he sends him on his way into the city where he'll meet a, a, a Gentile Christian named Cornelius, who will pray for him and his sight will be restored and he will instruct him further in the gospel. And so Paul's conversion from a Christian hunter into a Christian himself and ultimately a a sent one, an ambassador, a missionary for the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an incredible expression of God's grace. We need not forget when we read the intro to this letter, when he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he is pointing us toward immeasurable riches of grace that God has poured out on him to save him from sin and damnation, to bring him into his own family, the family of God, and then to even commission him with this task as an apostle. The second way we see God's grace is in the fact that Paul is appointed by God as a, 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 an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's appointment to the Gentiles is an expression of God's grace to the nations. Paul sees himself and the mission that God has given him as specifically related to the, the, the ethnicities outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish nation. Though he himself was a Jew, 
trained as a Pharisee. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like if there were, he's the most Jewish you could possibly get. And yet when God call, God saves him and God sends him, he sends him primarily as a light to the Gentiles. We need to remember back very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, when God made a promise to a man named Abram that he would make of him a great nation. He also promised that through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God had in his mind from the beginning a multi-ethnic, multilingual, global uh, people of God. And so even as he begins and just plants the seed of promise of the birth of the nation of Israel, embedded in that promise is, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than Abram. This is bigger than the people of Israel. This is a global mission. God is sending his light to the nations. Tom Schreiner says, the salvation of the Gentiles in Christ was not plan B, but the fulfillment of what God intended when he pledged to save many nations through Abraham. So when God appoints Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, we see a promise being kept. We see, oh, God is continuing to keep in motion his intention from the beginning to save a people for himself from every tribe and language and nation of the earth. Paul's commissioning in in Acts chapter 9 stated, the Lord states it to him explicitly. Actually, this is when God is speaking to Cornelius, giving him the message to give to Paul. He says, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the Gentiles and the kings are the first in line there. As he says, I have appointed Paul to carry my name specifically before the Gentiles. Paul himself regarded his mission in similar terms. In the beginning of the book of Romans, in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he says of himself and his own ministry, I am under obligation to both to Greeks and barbarians, that is those who are uncivilized and generally outside of the the people of, of Israel. So Paul regards himself as a commissioned missionary specifically to the Gentiles. Now he continued to go into Jewish synagogues and reason with people there and point them toward Jesus as the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. But there is a priority in his ministry of taking the gospel to those who are not Jewish, taking the gospel to people and places outside the boundaries of of Israel. Indeed, this seems to be why he began to use his Roman name, the Roman form of his name. His his given name, his Hebrew name, was Saul. And the Roman form of that name is Paul. So it seems to be that he even begins to go by that as an outreach, as as a way to sort of uh, remove a barrier from his non-Jewish audiences who wouldn't hear his name and think, why should I listen to this Jewish fella? They'd hear Paul and go, oh, he's one of us. He's a Roman, because indeed he is. He is both a a Jew and a Roman citizen, pretty uniquely. And so he begins going by his Roman name to connect with his Gentile 
audience. And so we see God's grace to the nations in appointing Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. One last note here, the, the, the word apostle, as Paul uses it, is a, is a technical term. It's used in a few different ways uh, throughout the New Testament. There's times where it means something pretty general, like a messenger or somebody who has been sent. But apostle more frequently, and almost always in Paul, has to do with uh, an office, a position of authority, uh, generally uh, reserved for those who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry and witnesses to his resurrection. Now, Paul was not a part of the, the ministry of Jesus while he was on the earth, and so his, his encounter with the risen Jesus was while Jesus was, after he had already ascended to heaven, right? And so he encounters him on the road in this blinding light and this voice from heaven. And so Paul himself regards his role as an apostle as a, as a grace in itself. He refers to himself in one place as, as uh, the least of the apostles and as one untimely born, Rec kind of recognizing I really shouldn't even be an apostle because I wasn't one of the original followers of Jesus. I wasn't a witness to the resurrection. And in fact, I was a persecutor of the church and yet God extended mercy to me. And so when he identifies himself as an apostle, he's reminding the church or alerting the church to the authority that he has, the sort of authorization he has been given by the Lord to carry the, the gospel and to speak truth. In other words, you should listen to what I say because it's not just my opinion. This is the word of the Lord as an appointed and authorized apostle. But even more than that, I think he's just astounded at God's grace. And so when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he's saying, the only reason I am here, the only reason I have any place to speak to you, the only reason I have this good news to share with you is because God simply willed that it would be so. It is by the kind pleasure of God that I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I think this reminds us more broadly that God assigns his people to particular places and tasks for his glory. Just as he assigned Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, he assigns each of his people who have all received the, the commission to carry the gospel, to, to preach the good news that sinners can be uh, renewed and restored and given eternal life through repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. He's given each of his people this mission to carry the message, to, to make disciples. And then he positions his people uniquely in situations, in locations, in uh, in places, in communities, in jobs with particular tasks. Here is the way that I intend for you to carry out the commission that I've given to all of my people. And it's good for us to, to think in those terms and to remember that God has an, a mission for you to carry out for each one of us. So everybody is not an apostle. In fact, I argue there are no more apostles. They all died in the first generation. There's no continuing apostles in that sense of the term. So everybody isn't an apostle. Everybody isn't a pastor or preacher. Everybody isn't a prophet. Everybody isn't a missionary, right, in terms of vocation. 
But if you're a teacher or you're a businessman, whatever your sort of vocation is, we should think of our lives in terms of how has God positioned me and entrusted me to carry the gospel and to bear the light of Christ in my particular situation. In other words, what is your assignment? And are you taking care to live that out and seeking the Lord? What would you have me do? Who would you have me reach? Who can I be your ambassador to in this day and season and situation of life? God's grace poured out on His people in His appointing of Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. Secondly, we see God's grace poured out on His people in that God sanctified His people in Christ. Look at verse, the second part of verse 1. After He's identified Himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, here's how He addresses the letter. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. We're going to hang out on this word. The saints. Does that mean that he is writing this letter to only a select few of the people who may be among the congregations in these churches who are super holy. right? People who are like a level or two above the rest of us. Is he saying, I'm writing this letter. You might hear it. Everybody might hear the letter. But I'm really addressing the few among you who are saintly people. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. Emphatically not. He is referring to all of the readers and hearers of this letter who are followers of Jesus as saints. The, the, the Greek word behind saint is the word uh, hagios, which is related to the word for holy. So hagios literally means holy ones. So when he says to the saints, he is saying to the, the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That word has the same root, the same Greek word as the word that we translate as sanctification. We talk a good bit about sanctification, particularly in the sense of a process of being gradually conformed to Christ throughout our lives. That may be, you could call that something like progressive sanctification. That is, we progress in holiness, grow in godliness as we live our lives. And so, theoretically, if we're following Christ the way we should, we'll be more holy, that is, more conformed to Christ five years from now than we are right now. More conformed to Christ a month from now than we are right now, if we're following Christ as we're called to follow Him. That's the, the way we tend to use the word sanctification, right? It's really just kind of a verbification of holy one, right? The ones who are being made holy is what sanctification is. Being made holy. Now, to call Christians saints, when Paul says to the readers of this letter and to us, to whom the letter has come down through these generations, to call Christians saints, holy ones, is not to speak of sanctification in terms of a process. He's not saying those who are being made holy and will one day be holy. He is saying to those who are God's holy ones, to those who are holy 
ones. It is to speak of sanctification as a one-time, already completed reality. In other words, Paul was saying, this is who you are now, not merely who you'll become someday. You are saints. The theologian John Murray referred to this understanding, this, this use of sanctification as definitive sanctification. That is a, a once-for-all positional change at the beginning, the inception of our Christian life, whereby God unites us to Christ's victorious life and declares us holy, sanctified. Paul, at least in one place, uses that, the word that way in 1 Corinthians where he speaks of those who are... Um, he lists all these various sins, immoral and idolaters and all these things. And he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the term sanctified in that sense, that past tense, one-time completed reality. You are sanctified, which means you are holy ones. You are saints. Now, that's not how we use the word today, is it? We use the word in all kinds of different ways. We, we may think of somebody who's sort of a questionable, kind of a shady character and think, uh, yeah, he's no saint. You know, you might say that about somebody. Or if somebody is particularly uh, calm and patient and gracious and goes through a lot without, like, kind of losing uh, her cool or her temper, we might say, man, she has the patience of a saint, right? Because we think that saint means some unique, privileged, special category of people who are way up there on the spiritual uh, spirituality ladder, right? They are so holy that we can call them a saint. Quite frankly, living in a, in a Catholic culture like this one, sainthood is seen even explicitly and formally as something very different than what Paul has in mind here. A, a saint is, is, is a status sainthood is a status that only certain exceptionally holy people attain, right? I read a headline recently about uh, a bishop that the church was was recognizing for his contributions to service to the world or something, and it said, like, this bishop is getting closer to sainthood. <laughs> I thought, that's not the way Paul uses the word saint. That's not the way that God thinks about a saint. Because, listen to me, you're saints. We are saints of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are His holy ones. According to the gospel, you who have trusted in Jesus Christ are the saints of God. When you come across the word saints in these New Testament letters, you should not think He's talking to some super holy class of people. You should think, that's me. I am a holy one of God. He has declared me holy. He has made me His saint. Praise God for His grace. To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the next phrase there. Uh, in this, he's using the, the word faithful here in the sense of believing. That is, those who are believers in Christ. And those two phrases, the saints and those who are faithful in Christ, are the same group of people. He's not saying, I'm talking to saints and to people who are faithful or believing in Jesus Christ. He's using those, those terms to refer to the same group of people. Namely, any Christians who receive, hear, or read this letter. You're saints. You are 
faithful in Christ Jesus. If you have repented of your sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, you belong to him and you are his faithful saints. Let me ask, is this how you see yourself? Is this how you're inclined most naturally to think about your identity? Do you recognize how securely you rest in God's grace? Dear saint, don't let your actual daily battles with sin cause you to forget who you are in Jesus Christ. You are his saints. You are his holy ones. He has called you. He has declared you holy. You are his. The Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the, the, the letter to the Ephesians. He says, this is not a letter addressed to some unusual and exceptional Christian people. It is not a letter addressed to some great scholar or theologian. It is not a letter addressed to teachers. It is not a letter addressed to so-called scholars who study the scriptures. It is not a letter to specialists, but a letter to ordinary church members. That is, from every standpoint, a most important observation. And for this reason, that everything the apostle says here about Christians and members of churches must therefore be equally true of us. All the high doctrine which we have in this epistle is something that you and I are meant to receive. The epistle to the Ephesians, perhaps the crowning achievement of the apostle's life and of his writings, is an epistle that is addressed to people like ourselves. Ordinary members of the church, of all churches, are meant to take hold of these doctrines and understand and rejoice in them. They are not merely for certain special learned people. They are meant for each and every one of us. God has sanctified his people in Christ and we see his grace poured out. Final way we see the grace of God poured out on his people in this greeting is that God made peace with sinners through the gospel. God made peace with sinners through the gospel. Look in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, charis is the Greek word for grace. And that would have been a typical Greek greeting. Grace. Peace is from the Greek Irene, which is the Greek form of the Jewish greeting, shalom. Right? We've spoken of shalom before as, as this, the embodiment of peace and God's blessing and favor upon his people. And so Greek people would say grace and Jewish people would say shalom. And in a sense here, Paul at the beginning of his letter says grace and shalom to you. He combines the standard Greek greeting and the standard Jewish greeting and, and unites them under the Lord Jesus Christ, which is perhaps a, a precursor or kind of a foreshadowing of one of the major themes of this letter, namely the blood-bought unity of Gentile and Jew as God's people through the cross of Christ. We'll see more of that as we go through this letter, but I don't think it's on accident. 
in this context that he's using grace and peace as uh, this dual greeting. And each term, grace and peace, is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you think about what each of those terms means, grace is the undeserved and lavish blessing of God upon us. We've been looking at that already in these other ways. And peace with God is the glorious result of that grace. God pours out His grace upon us in Jesus Christ who gave Himself up for our sins. And as a result of His sacrifice and our faith in Him, we have peace with God. We were enemies, rebels, at war with Him, under His wrath, destined to be recipients of His righteous judgment. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured in Himself all the wrath that was stored up for us, we can now experience peace. Peace. As the saints of God, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, the blessings of grace and peace have already been bestowed upon Paul's readers. So in one sense, he's reminding Christians. He's he's reminding us of what we already possess. Grace and peace to you. You have been lavished grace and you have been brought into a peaceful relationship with God, right? But in a a salutation like this, it's also to be seen as as a a well-wish, right? So he's saying, basically, may grace and peace be yours or may they abound to you, something along those lines. So while we acknowledge that as believers in the Lord Jesus, we have been lavished with grace and we have been brought into peace with God, we also see realities of God's life and love that we want to experience more and more. We want more of His grace. We want more of His peace. We want to grow in those experiences. Paul here expresses his desire that God's people would grow in our understanding of and awareness of God's grace and that we would experience the reality of His peace in fuller and deeper measure than ever before. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that something that you want? Don't you yearn for peace? Especially in the midst of crazy times like this. I don't know about you, but in these troubled days, like the ones in which we live, I long to experience the peace of God and to rest in His love. Good news. We have in the book of Ephesians, paragraph after paragraph, of glorious grace with which to feed our souls in the coming weeks from this book. May God use these precious truths to broaden our knowledge of Him and to deepen our experience of His love and to shape us into a holy people for His glory. After all, we are His saints. Let's pray together.